0: History is full of amazing stories and memorable people. But we don't care about them.
1: No hits, deep tracks only.
0: Some of the most influential people in the world have been completely overlooked or just plain forgotten.
2: We're digging deep into the history books to bring you their stories.
0: I'm Phil. And I'm Matt. We're not historians. We're just two guys who enjoy a great story and plenty of laughs.
2: This. This history's B-side. Today's B-sider is Crazy Nancy.
0: I want to thank everyone who's here at Sundog Cellars and tuning in on Facebook for our first ever live podcast, our first ever live episode of History's B-side. If you are hearing us for the first time ever, uh, we do a history podcast where we. Kind of talk about history's lesser known or unforgotten people. It's a lot of the stories that you've probably heard before uh, explained a lot more simply. And then the people from those stories that you probably haven't heard of that kind of made the stories happen.
2: Yeah, yeah. We kind of got into this to educate ourselves on history first because we felt like we didn't know a ton and and wanted to give some of the more forgotten people a voice. Um, And you can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Uh, you can find us on iHeartRadio and Anchor as well. And we're also on Facebook, Instagram. Are we on Twitter? Are We're on Twitter. We're on Twitter. We on Twitter um, <laughs> at History's B-Side. And you can also reach us at historiesbside at gmail.com if you want to comment, ask questions, suggest any topics for us. We're always happy to hear from fans and listeners. So we want to thank, first of all,
0: Nicole and the staff here at Sundog Cellars. Uh, we have our drinks here. It's a local... Cider House and Winery in Columbiana, Ohio, celebrating their grand opening of their new location. Got a big Kentucky Derby party going on throughout here today. So we're happy to be a part of this and to record our first ever live podcast episode. Nicole asked us before we started to do a topic on women in prohibition. So we had to do a little bit of research mm-hmm. and we've dug up some really interesting people that were involved in prohibition yeah yeah probably haven't heard it before so we're going to talk a little bit about the history of prohibition and of course the women behind it what are you drinking today
2: matt Uh, right now i'm drinking the grab a cab cabernet sauvignon what is that well i assume it's a cabernet sauvignon (laughs) it's a red wine it's uh i would say dry good good tannin structure
0: (laughs) i have a watermelon strawberry cider which is Ooh. not normally my jam, but I felt that it was appropriate for today's is topic. <laughs> is guess. that a pun? Yeah. I don't know. I'm not really like a cider drinker normally, but the, today's episode is going to have a lot to do with cider and production of alcoholic spirits of that time, so mm. I thought it was appropriate to get a cider and yeah, hey. imbibe. Have, are you familiar with the term teetotaler?
2: I am now that we've researched for this, <laughs> but...
0: So a teetotaler, and that's going to kind of come into the idea of Prohibition, but a teetotaler is a person who really abstains from the consumption of alcohol in total. Someone who does not drink at all. Clearly you and I are not teetotalers, otherwise we wouldn't be doing this.
2: We are not teetotalers. I don't think we can call ourselves teetotalers, (laughs) Phil, now.
0: But it's definitely going to play a role in Prohibition.
2: Yeah. So usually our, our episodes are laid out so that we cover you know, the basics and kind of a foundation of a a period of history or an event in history and then go into our topic for the second half of the episode. So just to kind of back up a little bit and give everybody um, a good foundation of the history of Prohibition and alcohol in the United States. Um, Alcoholic beverages were part of American history and culture from pretty much the beginning. The earliest settlers carried barrels of beer with them over from Europe. Um, Rum was served to soldiers in the Continental Army by Washington when he could get his hands on some. Apparently they had some <laughs> shortages, but...
0: Were the were the liquors that were served then pretty similar to what we know today? I assume the production wasn't quite as
2: strict or
1: yeah.
0: regimented, but would the taste of rum in the 1700s be
2: similar to what we drink today? I don't know that it would be vastly different, but I imagine so just because of those production changes. Um, they're also, I mean, I don't know if this is true of rum, but in, in wine and beer, um, sometimes they would add spices to them. We don't usually do that today, but the same way you would with like an apple cider, Hmm. um, like adding cinnamon or nutmeg um, to the mixture, sometimes honey to make it sweeter.
0: And we definitely do that with everything now. Like go to a craft beer (laughs) bar now and try to order something that isn't flavored one way or another. Right,
2: right. So, I mean, from the beginning, drinking accompanied most social events and gatherings in the United States. I mean, when people... When people you know, celebrated a business deal, uh, when they bought a new house, when they won a battle, when they lost a battle, they would drink. Um, so it was a really kind of intertwined uh, social and cultural symbol. Um and a lot of people this time drank wine and beer with breakfast, lunch, and dinner, especially in rural parts of the of New England. Um, it was customary in some parts of New England actually for a town bell to ring twice a day to signal a drinking break for workers.
0: I think we joked on an earlier episode that alcohol then
2: was actually cleaner than water, so that's why it yeah, was so well, that w- and that was widely consumed. Part yeah. of it. i I think it was John Adams, but one of the early founding fathers actually said, Um, the soldiers in the Continental Army would be better off drinking (laughs) rum or wine than water. Um, But nonetheless, by the 1800s, rum, whiskey, and other distilled spirits had started to become increasingly available, and they began to replace wine and beer as the daily drink of choice. Now, this was a problem because most people were used to drinking beer and wine all day long, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, which is like 8%. Well, then they started drinking rum and whiskey, specifically whiskey, And it kind of got away from the culture uh, before they could, I guess, see where it was headed because people started to become, you know, really tolerant on this because of the higher level of alcohol in rum and whiskey. Um, And actually, by the 1830s, the average American over 15 years of age was consuming 88 bottles of whiskey per year.
0: I mean, that's like a bottle and a half a
2: week. Yeah, it's It's at least a bottle a week. Um, and Americans were actually spending more on alcohol than the total annual expenditures of the U S government Jeez. per year. That's a lot. <laughs> so everybody was boozing. Um, and it, it was kind of a problem uh, there uh, more and more husbands and fathers. And at this time that was the, I mean the main, I guess thoroughfare for society and, in families, the the father was the one who earned the money and, you know, represented the family. And when, all of these husbands and fathers were spending evenings after work drinking instead of going home. Um, Not only were they spending their, you know, wages on alcohol, but often they would come home intoxicated. And there was a definite rise in domestic violence um, and and poverty at this time. And a lot of people thought it was solely due to alcoholism. So
0: was alcohol consumption typically a gender issue? Was it were there not really women that were
2: drinking? It was all the men. I mean, I can't say for sure that like women didn't drink at all, but like I said, they weren't. It wasn't a time when women commonly went on a t- out on the town by themselves. Like the men were the yeah. ones going out after work and drinking, um, and women were usually home taking care of the family. No girls at the saloon. <sighs> not usually. Ladies the saloons are a pretty rough place. <laughs> um, but it, 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 the other part of it was that there wasn't really the idea of divorce wasn't common at this time. Like I said, the men were the leaders, quote-unquote, for the household. So um, it, it was kind of a situation that a lot of women and children got stuck in where this person that's supposed to represent their family and protect their family ends up being a problem. Um, so these temperance movements started springing up. Everybody kind of viewed, at least on the prohibition side of thing, everybody viewed alcohol as the problem. There were even some towns that sold their jails after Prohibition began because (laughs) uh, the booze is gone. Nobody's going to break laws now. We're good. Right, yeah. Um, (laughs) So the people in the Prohibition movement were really focused on alcohol as the sole problem. And so this temperance movement begins as a grassroots effort to encourage abstinence from alcohol. Early on, the calls were for the avoidance of distilled spirits only, so those rum, rum, whiskey, but over time became more and more strict, eventually demanding capital T, total abstinence, which was everything. Um, and that's where the phrase teetotaler comes from, hmm. capital T, total. Um, so instead of just calling for you know, a return to whiskey and beer, they eventually came for everything. Um, so prohibition movements begin to be pushed by groups like the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the Anti-Saloon League, and various Protestant Christian denominations. And that's one of the Ohio connections we have is the Anti-Saloon League was started here um, and headquartered in, in Ohio for a while.
0: I think we talked a little bit. I don't know if this episode pe- hasn't really come out yet, so people haven't heard it. But we talked on an earlier one about how some of these groups were involved in everyday politics. Like they right. were actually influencing the government at the time. Do you, yeah. can you
2: explain on anything on that? Um, I mean, they they definitely had a lot of ties to, especially local governments, um, and this was all kind of part of the progressive era, and a lot of people don't know this, but prohibition was also tied to the women's suffrage movement, because like I said, it was mm-hmm. kind of a women's family issue, um, with men being inebriated every night, so they, <laughs> and, and it as part of their fight for representation, for voting rights... They added in prohibition to improve their um, circumstance. But states themselves, before there was a national prohibition law, states began to basically decide on their own that they were going to ban alcohol, Uh, beginning with Kansas all the way back in 1881, which is about 40 years before the national prohibition. Um, And it's in Kansas in the 1880s that our first woman of prohibition appears. It's a woman by the name of Carrie Nation, who was a radical prohibition activist in Kansas, and she became known for attacking taverns in Kansas by scolding their staff and patrons and then destroying all their bottles and their bar with a hatchet. She was the original Karen. (laughs) There you go. She's the original Karen. Um, Carrie Karen. (laughs) So one story actually alleges that Carrie, early on, went door to door through through a Kansas town uh, eventually destroying three separate saloons with bricks, rocks, and this hatchet she had. Um, and she would go in, smash all of the you know, smash all the bottles, smash the mirror. Um, so eventually, after three saloons, she was arrested, but released later that day. <laughs> and as the story goes, as soon as she was released, she went straight to a fourth saloon with her hatchet in her hand. Um, her particularly aggressive brand of temperance activism spread around the country and she actually became pretty infamous uh, among saloon owners who feared that any day she might pay them a visit and smash all their product. Um, I mean, that's fair. <laughs> a little worried that someone's going right. to come in and smash all of your liquor. Um, so, uh, Carrie also argued against tight clothing for women, specifically corsets, and self-described her as a bulldog running along at the feet of Jesus, barking at what he doesn't <laughs> like. This kind of, I
0: don't know, in a way reminds me of like the overly aggressive Christians that like there are definitely things that the Bible talks about being wrong and sacrilegious and stuff, mm-hmm. but, I mean, even Jesus drank wine. Like, There's well, not really it, anything in the Bible that explicitly states against alcohol actually, in general, but obviously within reason. But yeah. this is just, it seems like to make this your religious mission to destroy right. alcohol in your town is kind of a stretch. Right.
2: Well, I actually read uh, during the research for this that there were some... Christian temperance unions that actually changed the wording of the Bible that really? they used. They changed wine into raisin bread just so that there was no booze. No booze in the bread book at all. Um,
0: it's when Jesus turned the, uh, <laughs> the crackers into raisin bread.
2: Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, and this woman, Carrie Nation, for another local connection, also allegedly called Youngstown. Now consider this. She didn't like the booze. She didn't like the saloons. And she called Youngstown the worst city she had ever seen.
0: I mean, there's people that call <laughs> Youngstown that now, and that has nothing to do with drinking.
2: <laughs> well, we did at the time, we had hundreds. I think it was 260 different saloons in it's, the city was, of Youngstown. There were more saloons than there were grocery stores.
0: I mean, I feel like we're kind of like that now. Well, we're we st- are still more bars like than grocery stores now.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, but... Later on, eventually at the federal level, there started to amass some pressure for this proposed amendment for Prohibition. And it was introduced in late 1917, but initially was pretty slow moving. Uh, a temporary wartime Prohibition Act was passed in November of 1918, which was intended to save grain for military use during World War One. but unfortunately this act didn't take effect until July of 1919, um, almost a year later, nearly eight months after the war had ended. Um, and it it, even though it didn't really have a big effect, it still kind of helped pave the way um, for people mentally uh, for the eventual approval and ratification of the 18th Amendment, which is National Prohibition. Um, so later that year, January 16th, 1919, Prohibition began, or I'm sorry, it was ratified on January 16th of 1919, and one year later um, began And this amendment initially just prohibited the manufacture, sale, and transportation of intoxicating liquors within the United States and its territories. And it didn't initially ban, or technically ban, the consumption of alcohol. Just the manufacture sale and transportation. So, So you
0: could drink it, you just couldn't get it.
2: Right. So the thought is that if you couldn't get it, make it, or sell it, nobody would drink it. And there was this view, especially among prohibitionists, that the saloon owners and alcohol vendors were these pushers. Um, I guess almost like a drug dealer that like, we're pushing this on their Nobody wants to
0: drink, they just keep offering it to me. They keep making
2: us do it. (laughs) And so they thought that removing the pressure of the vendor, people wouldn't partake in the first place. No more jails. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, So one issue with the 18th Amendment was that it didn't, A, it didn't clearly define intoxicating liquors, nor did it provide for any regulations for enforcement or punishment for disobeying that law. Um, So a second National Prohibition Act was needed, uh, which was informally known as the Volstead Act. um, And it was passed after Congress voted to override President Woodrow Wilson's veto. Um, And this act basically remedied those those problems. It defined intoxicating liquors as any beverage containing over 0.5% alcohol and this low threshold even surprised supporters of yeah, prohibition. Yeah, that's
0: not really what we describe liquor as today. Right. Like liquor is typically, typically, <laughs> um, like 40% or higher, yeah. or at least high proof spirits. You wouldn't right. would think even beer doesn't count as liquor, and beer is still awarded
2: yeah. well, 40%. That, <laughs> that kind of turned prohibition into a pretty unpopular thing, especially among immigrants, um, specifically Catholic Italians and Catholic Irish. Who, for whom, the drinking of beer and, and wine were daily cultural things. Mm-hmm. Germans too. I mean, that Anheuser Busch had just arrived, and you know, all of those um, German immigrants were coming over and starting these massive breweries. Um, but, like I said, it wasn't an intoxicating it, it wasn't intoxicating liquor, I guess. But it wasn't in that distilled spirits category until this act put yeah. it in that category. There's actually a really great story about one of the wineries. I can't remember which winery it is, but instead of producing wine, they transitioned to producing this great must. It was like just a mixture that you put water into, and mm-hmm. it basically would ferment in your tub. <laughs> and on the package, instead of instructions, they had a warning with the instructions. So like, warning, if Do you not add water. put this in a bucket
0: <laughs> yeah. and let it sit for. <laughs> right. So they just hid
2: their, their instructions as a warning. Um, Don't want that to turn into something (laughs) that'll get you drunk. So this whole thing basically turned the manufacture and sale of alcohol, which was once a legal industry, um, and pretty much pushed it into the black market, uh, into the hands of criminal gangs who began what was called bootlegging. Now, the name bootlegging stems initially from illegal street vendors of alcohol who sold swigs from bottles hidden in their (laughs) pant legs, which is super COVID-friendly, I heard. (laughs) I mean, that makes <laughs> sense,
0: bootleg. I've never like understood yeah. where that comes from.
2: Yeah, so these guys would have these wide pants and just hide bottles of <laughs> liquor in a bottle or in a bag in their pants. <laughs> um, but legally, the term refers to simply the illegal manufacture, sale, and distribution of alcohol. Um, and this pretty much popped up in any state or local jurisdiction that were considered dry or had prohibition laws. Um, or sometimes people did it even when it wasn't a dry state just to avoid paying the taxes on manufactured imported liquors. Um, so there were some people who basically made moonshine to avoid the taxes. Yeah, even if it was the, the taxes, legal. right. So while we all kind of associate men, like Al Capone or Charles Luciano, with the bootlegging business, women were actually far more effective bootleggers than men. Hmm. Um, because many states had laws that protected women from being searched, um, they made better candidates for smuggling. Um, male bootleggers actually would often hire a woman to ride along with them, I guess, just to kind of give the, the air of, of innocence um, <laughs> and make them less susceptible to stop and search. Yeah, um, the,
0: the innocent <laughs> women wouldn't have anything to do with this evil sin of bootlegging. Of course. <laughs>
2: An Ohio Ohio newspaper, actually, reported that no self-respecting prohibition agent would stop a vehicle with a woman in it. Um, Some women would hide liquor on their body or in their clothes and taunt enforcement officers to search them, threatening to sue anyone who touched them. Uh, They were harder to detect and therefore arrest, uh, much less likely to boast or be confrontational with officers. At times, even if they admitted to owning a still, authorities just wouldn't believe them and think that there was (laughs) no way a woman would be capable of running a distillery.
0: Yeah, come on. What man is doing this for you? (laughs) Who are you taking the fall for?
2: (laughs) Juries, I mean, juries were more reluctant to convict them, uh, especially mothers and grandmothers for their crimes because they had children. They usually received shorter sentences, smaller fines, or were simply pardoned. Um, So it just made more sense than have, if you had an operation and you had women available who were willing to do this, it made more sense from a... I guess, stealth perspective. Um, and it's believed that at the time, female bootleggers outnumbered males five to one. Wow. That's so, yeah. a lot. <laughs> That's like
0: probably one of the biggest
2: industries to have yeah. women representatives.
0: Illegal moonshine.
2: <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a huge spread. Um, and I guess it just makes sense given all of that. I mean, at the time, all of those, I guess, societal social things that we don't really think about today as much. But... That kind of does a good introduction, I think, for our topic for today, which is women of of prohibition. Um. Normally
0: on our podcast, we take a quick break right here, but we're just going to power through it. So (laughs) if you're listening along, feel free to get yourself a drink, enjoy your own legal ability to consume alcohol, (laughs) and we will start talking about some of the actual women who are involved in moonshining and prohibition.
2: Look, if you've made it this far, we know you already love History's B-Side.
0: But seriously, we just wanted to take a minute to tell you some ways you can support the podcast
2: on our website, historiesbside.com. The first and most direct way you can support our podcast is by signing up for a membership. You can join at any monthly contribution level, but we suggest $10 to start. Though, please feel free to pick whatever fits into your budget. A membership will get you access to monthly boneless episodes, show notes, future episode cues, surprise gifts, and more.
0: We also have on there our merch shop, which includes things like t-shirts, hoodies, hats, drinkware, bags, stuff for adults, kids, and dogs, so you can rep your favorite history podcast everywhere
2: you go. You'll also find extras, including free stickers, bookmarks, and postcards you can suggest an episode topic, or submit a question about the podcast, one of our episodes, or even about us.
0: That website again is historiesbside.com. And now, back to the episode. All right, so today we're talking mostly about women in prohibition. Some of the more notable ones I honestly, before reading this, I couldn't name a single woman in Prohibition, so it's kind of...
2: I don't know that I would have been able to.
0: Yeah, it, it was kind of cool to read all this. There's not a ton of stories about them because there's really not a lot of history about criminals. Like, Right. <laughs> we try to, I guess, write them out of the history books. So it was cool to come across some of these names, and they all have very unique and different stories, uh, whether they were producing or distributing or just along for the ride. It was fun yeah. to get into some of them and... Really pick one who would be our main topic today. So before we get into our main topic, we're going to talk about some of these women. Uh, the first one I almost made today's main topic is a woman by the name of Maggie Bailey. She was known as the Queen of the Mountain, Bootle- Queen of the Mountain Bootleggers in Harlan County, Kentucky. Mm. Now, she obviously was involved during Prohibition, so the 1920s through the early 30s. Yeah. Uh, she started selling moonshine at the age of 17. Jeez. But even after Prohibition ended, she continued to sell moonshine out of the back of her house until she was 95 years old. Dang. (laughs) Harlan County, Kentucky was a dry county, so even after Prohibition was repealed, she still couldn't legally sell moonshine at home. Interesting. But people in the town wanted to drink, so they would come to her house and she would know who she could sell it to and distribute it. (laughs) She herself never drank alcohol, and she often said that she refused to sell to children
2: or to drunkards. Do you you know how she told, like, did she have a test to tell if people were drunkards?
0: I have to think it's a small (laughs) town. Like, Like you probably know everyone, you know who the drunkards are. But, I mean, if she's doing it illegally, she's still being responsible in how she's selling her moonshine. She was arrested on multiple occasions throughout the county for selling moonshine illegally, but the juries in the town refused to convict her. Everyone loved her, everyone knew what she was doing, and they knew that she was someone you could go to to get your alcohol, so they didn't want to convict her and arrest her because even the people sitting on the juries were buying alcohol from her.
2: Well, it's kind of that, I mean, it's not even a a, a situation unique to this town. I mean, a lot lot of Congress was (laughs) buying, right after they voted to pass prohibition, were buying alcohol. There was actually a man whose name I can't remember, but he was known as the man in the green hat. Um, there's actually a great Did he dis- have a
0: name? It was just the man in the green he, hat? No, he had a name, but he
2: was known as the man in the green hat because he wore a green hat. But he actually had an office in the Capitol building where he sold booze. <laughs> kind <laughs> Boo of like a booze. you
0: scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Right. Give me alcohol and I won't arrest you.
2: And there, there were a couple presidents at the time, too, that still continued to serve alcohol <laughs> despite having this law in the Constitution. Um, so it, it makes sense that like some juries in, in certain towns would be completely unwilling yeah. to convict somebody like this.
0: So Maggie Bailey lived to be 101 years old and she continued selling alcohol, like I said, until the last couple years Because she never life. drank. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Everyone else in the town died young, but she was good. The next one we're going to talk about is a one by the name of Willie Carter Sharp. She was a 26-year-old when she was moonshining from Franklin County, Virginia. And she is known as the Rum Running Queen because she helped distribute moonshine across the Virginia border into other states. She was very effective. She... It's believed that she transported more than 220,000 gallons of her homemade moonshine between the years of 1926 and 1931. She, I guess, didn't even really do it for the money. She always just enjoyed the adrenaline rush of distributing the moonshine. (laughs) She said, it was the excitement that got me. Cars scattering, dashing along the streets... And when she was finally arrested and was put on trial, the specters of the trial talked about how they were more intrigued by the diamonds in her teeth than anything else. She had grills. <laughs> yes, she had grills. <laughs> I mean, that's just how lucrative the business was. Yeah. She made enough money that she had diamonds encrusted in her of teeth.
2: Course. Well, that's, I mean, that's the first thing you buy right after the car. and <laughs> Absolutely. That's the how the people know
0: teeth. you got the goods. <laughs> the next woman is uh, a woman by the name of Mary Wazniak. I don't know if I'm saying that right. that has got to be some kind of... Sounds good to me. I mean, I'm not Polish, which is what I think that is. But she was a 34-year-old mother, a Polish immigrant, Mm. I guess I should (laughs) have known that. (laughs) She was a 34-year-old mother and Polish immigrant from LaGrange Park, Illinois, which is pretty close to Chicago. Mm -hmm. talk about the Al Capone tie-in. She's in that same kind of area. She earned the nickname Moonshine Mary after a particularly strong batch that she made, (laughs) which caused a man after a night of drinking to pass out fall into a bog, and die. That's
2: really brutal.
0: (laughs) I mean, moonshine was not the moonshine we know today that's clean and well-produced. And some of it was very strong, very toxic, and led to some bad situations. (laughs) She was actually the first woman convicted in the state of Illinois for selling fatal moonshine.
2: So I think we've mentioned moonshine a couple different times already. Um, I have kind of a vague idea of what it is, but is this a legally defined term or is it just slang for any black market illegally produced alcohol?
0: So nowadays we do have a definition for moonshine. It's actually just whiskey that isn't aged properly. Hmm. Whiskey is aged in barrels, which is what gives it the brown caramel color. Yeah, But moonshine is not aged. It's, It's made exactly like whiskey today mind you it's made exactly like whiskey it's not aged so it comes out as a clear liquor it's very strong it's pretty harsh but you can add other things to it there's a lot of flavored moonshines like that okay but in back in this time moonshine wasn't clearly defined it was something just that was made term. by the shine of the moon at night when you could get away with it gotcha so it was just any kind of bootleg okay. illegal alcohol really anything that people could make and sell <laughs> and distribute and get drunk off of Another woman I wanted to talk about was the name... Uh, her name was Gertrude Leithgo, but she really was known by the name of Cleo. This is another woman that I wanted to make this episode because she was... It sounded really cool, but I, I couldn't find her book. I wanted to read her book for this mm. episode, but it just was not available anywhere I tried to look. But she was known as the Bahaman Queen, uh, and she actually might have been the most successful female bootlegger in history. She was a licensed liquor wholesaler in Nassau in the Bahamas, where she imported scotch from the UK and then commissioned her own boats to smuggle it into the US.
2: Was her business considered legal by the UK and Bahamas? It, was it like only illegal once she started bringing it into the US?
0: I believe so. I, I mean, the UK never had you know, nationwide prohibition. They right. had some small pockets that argued for it or they might have had like, local jurisdictions that didn't allow prohibition or didn't allow the sale of alcohol. Sure. But the U.K. never actually had prohibition the way that America did. So it was, it was legal for her to import her scotch or whatever she was getting from the U.K. to the Bahamas. It was just when she tried to sell it to the Americas that it became illegal. It <laughs> yeah. But because she was able to bring it in legally and she got actually good liquor, like good scotch, the mm-hmm. finest quality, it wasn't this bathtub moonshine that was being sold throughout the rest of the That's city but throughout the rest of the country. She actually was very well-known, very popular, very successful because people wanted her moonshine, or her alcohol. She was a very tough and independent woman. She never married, but she did, on many occasions, receive love letters and even marriage proposals by mail sent to her in the Bahamas.
2: <laughs> was this because of her moonshining business? like? I have to imagine. I mean, <laughs> like,
0: people just wanted to have the connection for the alcohol.
2: You're my, you're my booze supplier. We need to be together. <laughs> It's like history's version of sliding into an Instagram direct (laughs) message.
0: (laughs) The 1920s, and so the 2020s sliding into the DMs. Yep. (laughs) Uh, She was quoted as saying, I don't need a man to tell me what to do. So she turned down all of these marriage proposals and she was single and ran her business. And it's believed that she was worth around a million dollars in that time. So she was successful and made a lot of money doing what she was doing. I also want to talk about a couple of the women prohibition agents so this was on the other end, the government officials who were arresting these moonshiners and bootleggers Uh, the first one is a woman named Georgia Hopley, she was actually the first woman prohibition agent when she was hired in 1922 she began her career as a a female reporter in Columbus, Mm -hmm. Ohio, she was actually the first female reporter in Columbus, Ohio and later she was the publicity director for Warren G. Harding's presidential campaign so she was a very influential successful woman involved in politics, but as a Prohibition agent, she predominantly just worked in public relations. She spoke at churches and schools and conventions and uh, really just talked about Prohibition enforcement and the evils of liquor.
2: She's like a a dare officer for alcohol. Pretty
0: much, yeah. Uh, Another Prohibition agent that I wanted to make sure I talked about, uh, this is, I don't know, she was a very different style, different approach than Georgia Hopley, is a woman by the name of Daisy Simpson. She was a young woman who began her, I guess in childhood, she was a delinquent. She got arrested a lot. She got in a lot of trouble for different things, but she turned into an undercover liquor agent. Mm. She's most famous for having over 100 disguises. <laughs> she brought all kinds of different outfits and wigs and makeup, and she would change her appearance every day. That's awesome. She would just go hang out in these speakeasies that she was able to find and you know, go sit at a table and yeah. wait for someone to come over and serve her liquor. And then immediately arrest that person.
2: (laughs) She would just. No, that's entrapment. It really is. Like, she would
0: walk into a bar, sit down at a table or at the bar, and wait for the bartender to come over and hand her a drink and be like, You're under arrest. (laughs) Uh, She also, this is even more diabolical, would sit outside of taverns on the streets and just pretend to be sick and wait for someone to come over and offer her a little bit of whiskey because that's sort of medicinal at the time there were legal (laughs) loopholes for whiskey to be medicine so she would wait for someone to come by and offer her a sip of whiskey to help her feel better and then she would immediately arrest them for (laughs) having the alcohol on them and trying to distribute it so she was kind of a different approach to Georgia Hopley she was very on the streets and you know really trying to get to people Uh, she sometimes went a little overboard (laughs) as you can probably tell she was really just arresting unimportant bartenders or people that were just passing it out rather than going after the actual moonshiners distributors Mm -hmm. the people that were really flooding the streets with alcohol so she had to be reined in a little bit and she wasn't quite as polished or well-known as Georgia Hopley so I guess we should probably get into our main topic today (laughs) We Crazy Nancy. We introduced our topic as Crazy Nancy. Uh, that was long ago, and we didn't really talk about it, yeah. so I guess people might not remember that. But Crazy Nancy is a topic. It's not. That crazy Nancy that we uh, heard so much. In you know the what media I was? Oh my god! <laughs> I was looking
2: up trivia for the quiz questions at the end of our episode, and I couldn't find anything on Crazy Nancy the Moonshiner. It was just all Nancy, Nancy, Nancy Pelosi, Pelosi articles.
0: <laughs> you know, the it nickname so that I have to imagine our former president didn't know he was referencing a moonshiner when he called the Speaker of the House Crazy Nancy. But <laughs> Crazy Nancy was a moonshiner. Um, she actually was around before Prohibition was even you know, national law. Mm-hmm. She was in Warren County, New Jersey in the late 1800s. Uh, New Jersey did have legal sale of alcohol at this time, but she was one of those people that was involved in bootlegging because it was her way of getting around paying taxes. She was able to distribute gotcha. it for a higher profit because she didn't have to register with the state or whatever agencies and then pay taxes on anything that she made yeah. and sold. The alcohol that Crazy Nancy produced was called Applejack. It's fairly well-known in the New England region. I don't know that we have it too much here in this area, but you can get it if you actually do look for it. Uh, Another common name for it was Jersey Lightning because it was mostly made in New Jersey and because it was so high-proof that it left a burning sensation when you drank it. (laughs) A burning sensation in your mouth that went all the way down to your stomach. But Applejack or Jersey Lightning was just a high-proof fermented apple cider. So kind of like what we would drink here at Sundog, but a lot stronger. Way more alcoholic. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, New Applejack is really what left that burning sensation. So new being unfermented, unaged. It was just kind of a, a, I guess, fresher alcohol that didn't have time to settle. You could buy Applejack for about a dollar to $1.25 a gallon at the time, mm. which in today's dollars is 32 to $40 a gallon, which is about what you'd buy a bottle of liquor. Yeah. This is obviously a gallon price, so right. it's a little bit bigger, but that's about what you'd buy a standard bottle of liquor for today. But once you aged the Applejack, uh, it would, had a more oily texture, it was smoother, it didn't upset the stomach the way certain other liquors do, it didn't quite have that harsh burning sensation, and the price would jump up to... Three dollars a gallon, which is a lot. Yeah,
2: <laughs> so you could like basically increase your profit margin just by aging all yeah, your products. Yeah, I first? mean you do
0: that with any liquor today. Still, sure. you, you age whiskeys better, and the price goes way up on it because gotcha. You know, people don't want fresh scotch that was just made. <laughs>
2: scotch burning your throat from your. <laughs> right.
0: So, like we said, it it was legal in New Jersey to produce and sell this Applejack. Uh, legal distillers would pay the proper taxes and the licenses to produce it, but there were a lot of Moonshiners who made their own version of Applejack uh, to get around paying these taxes, and they made them basically in caves with concealed entrances and ways that they Hmm. could hide their actual still. I don't see Nicole around. I was going to invite her up here to talk about the production of Hard Cider, so we can kind of get an idea of what we're drinking while we're here at Sundog. It's okay, you don't have to get her. (laughs) (laughs) Basically, the, the process that I've found for hard cider is very similar to if you were to home brew beer, but instead of using, you know, hops and barley and malt, you take preservative-free apple juice, so fresh, raw apple juice, uh, dissolve it with brown sugar or other types of spices. You steep it um, while it's boiling and very hot. Eventually, you need to cool it. You add the yeast the same way that you would when you're brewing beer, allow it to ferment for several weeks, and then you eventually bottle it for Mm -hmm. consumption. So it's very similar to making beer, but you're using it with Apples and Instead making of, apple cider. Right. To make this Apple Jack, which is this now stronger proof liquor, you had to freeze already fermented apple cider. So you took actual apple cider and then you would freeze it and the, the process of freezing it is called jacking, mm-hmm. so that's where the name Apple Jack comes from. Uh, you would freeze it and then you would remove the ice crystals that form from freezing it because alcohol doesn't really freeze. So yeah. once you're removing the ice crystals, you're taking out the water, water and every, right. everything that's basically diluting the apple cider from being super alcoholic liquor to apple cider, removing it, and then you're turning it into um, this applejack, this liquor. Sure. Oh, Nicole, do you want to come over here and explain yeah, what we cider wondering made? If you th- Since you know better than we do, can hat off? you can take if your you stupid want. hat off. Although the people on the Facebook Live might want to see your stupid hat
2: you want me to switch places there?
0: Yeah, you just got to duck down low because the camera's pretty low right here. I'll duck down low. So we're we're inviting Nicole on here. She's one of the owners of Sundog Cellars who's very graciously having us do our live episode here. And the stupid hat. She has the stupid hat. (laughs) So how is apple cider made? You can explain it better than I can.
1: So we get um, uh, unpasteurized, with no preservatives, uh, apple cider. And then we... Have to measure the bricks to see how much sugar is in it to make sure that the yeast will work properly. So once we measure the bricks, we can add sugar or not add sugar. And then it goes through about fifteen days of fermentation. And we need it in Ohio to finish at over seven percent oh, alcohol. Really? I didn't yeah. Know that. Because if we don't, the FDA has to come in and test all of our stuff for bacterial growth. So I guess seven percent is like the magic number. So that's
0: a safety thing that's not like If it's under 7%, it's classified as some other kind of alcohol?
1: Correct. Like, I I would rather it be lower because, I mean, two ciders, and you're (laughs) like, what day is it? Because it's 8-plus percent over here. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, we have to do that for um, the FDA. And so after that, um, it ferments. Um, Sometimes we filter it. We try not to filter it because we feel it takes, like, all the fun stuff out of it. And then we add whatever uh, fruits we want to uh, use to add the flavors.
0: I'm drinking the watermelon strawberry one right now. Yeah, watermelon. It's good. Yeah. It's,
1: that's the second cider we ever made. Really? The first cider we made was the Knight Rider, which was just, just apple. The, cool. Um, and it's named after John Channel, uh, one of my business partners. He was a truck driver. And his nickname was Night Rider. so <laughs> And that's why you can see his face. Oh, okay. Um, if you guys ever come in here, you can see his face <laughs> on the wall, and you can know what I'm talking about, and it'll be great.
0: So if you're listening in the northeast Ohio, western Pennsylvania, or anywhere within driving distance of Columbian, Ohio, come down, visit Sundog Cellars, and thank them for having us here.
1: Thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you. This is okay. fun. Yeah, I'm glad. Do you need, do you need more to drink?
0: Uh, I'm good right now, good? but okay. once we are done, we'll be uh, okay. having more.
1: Bye, everyone.
0: <laughs> All right, we'll let Matt come back on the microphone here. I don't have a fun hat. You So basically, we take the process of making hard cider, and we go through what's called freeze distillation to turn mm-hmm. it into applejack. Basically freezing the cider, removing the ice crystals, and then as you do that, you're taking uh, you're What's the opposite of diluting it? You're making Concentrating. it more concentrated Concentrating, yeah. <laughs> to make it a higher-proof alcohol. This process is called jacking or freeze distillation. And basically, it would increase the alcohol content of the apple cider from like Nicole was saying, typically under 10 percent is cider. it's usually usually around eight to 10 percent. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it, this process could increase the alcohol content of Applejack from that eight to 10 percent to 25 to 40 percent alcohol oh, wow. by volume, which is what we know more as like standard liquor spirits, yeah. Yeah, higher proof. The oldest licensed Applejack distillery in the United States is called Laird and Company. It's located in Scobieville, New Jersey. Like we said, a lot of this comes from New Jersey and the uh, New England states. Uh, This this Applejack was first produced by a Scottish immigrant by the name of William Laird in 1698, so it's a pretty old spirit. Um, The distillery was actually founded by his great-grandson Robert Laird in 1780. Hmm. It's noted that George Washington was a big fan of Laird's Applejack. Interesting. He even requested the family recipe for his own production, <laughs> which is kind of cool. You, yeah. I mean, you talk about some of the presidents that were involved in moonshining, I guess, although yeah. it wasn't technically illegal at this point, but to have George Washington drinking Applejack. The company survived through prohibition by producing non-alcoholic
2: apple juice, and they still operate today. Do they, are they making apple juice today, or did they start making... I guess distilled spirits. <laughs> <laughs> they make applejack.
0: <laughs> I don't believe they still make apple juice. They make all kinds of different apple flavored liquors and liqueurs and brandy okay. and this applejack. I think they work with a lot of other distilleries to produce vodkas and some other flavored spirits. Okay. Uh, when I was looking, so the only non-alcoholic thing they make is like bar cherries. So like, <laughs> not really <With> <laughs> apple cherries. juice, but they're they've gone back to the high high proof stuff. Most. Uh, modern Applejack distilleries today have kind of changed the process. They don't do freeze distillation. They use evaporative distillation, which Mm. don't ask me how that works because I'm not a distiller, but I assume it's kind of the opposite effect where instead of freezing it, you're boiling it enough that you're kind of getting rid of the...
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't know a ton about it. I know that most stills, like, you'll boil it and then the vapor, at a certain temperature, the alcohol vapor rises and then collects in a cooling tube, and that basically allows you to... You know way more about this than I do. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's pretty much the same process for, I mean, gin, vodka. I've been to a couple of distilleries, and it's it's usually the same, depending on which one you're yeah. at. They have different types of sills, but... All right, that, so let's get back
0: into <laughs> our actual topic today.
2: <laughs> Crazy Nancy. We've
0: talked about it a lot, but we haven't really talked about it. Uh, so, Crazy Nancy, she was, like we said, a bootlegger moonshiner from the late 1880s, which was before prohibition was actually in effect. Yeah, um, the, There's not a lot known about a lot of these moonshiners, bootleggers. Literally everything I know about this woman came from one newspaper article that I could find from the 1890s that talked about this story 10 years after it happened. Mm-hmm. So take that for what you will. It might not be the most factual story that we have on our <laughs> podcast, but hey, it's a fun one. Uh, so in the late 1880s, government officials in Warren County, New Jersey, became suspicious of an illegal moonshine business that was operating in the area. And they they knew that it was more than just a home brewing type thing where people were making stuff and passing it out to their friends and neighbors. This yeah. was a higher scale production, distribution network. Mm-hmm. Um, so suspicion in the town fell on this woman that the townspeople only knew as crazy Nancy. They didn't even really know her real name, so her name might not have been Nancy. <laughs> they probably just called her Crazy <laughs> they just Nancy started calling her crazy she Nancy. was just this really like eccentric woman in the town. Uh, they didn't really know who she was, where she came from. They did know that she lived somewhere along the hills of the Pequest River, which kind of runs through Warren County and some of the surrounding areas. But she would appear frequently at town markets throughout the... Eastern Warren County and Mm -hmm. in these markets she would sell berries in the summer she'd sell furs and other game in the winter so she was a market person like she was there selling stuff that wasn't alcohol it was legal legal operation Um, but she always seemed to have plenty of money which was not very typical these market people Uh, and they recognized that she was a shrewd businesswoman. she was they they knew she had she knew how to strike a hard deal. She was always negotiating with people. It was very opposite of her otherwise eccentric, airy personality. Yeah. But the strangest thing about crazy Nancy was that every winter she would just disappear for six weeks.
2: Just hibernating. Yeah, she would like
0: just she not show up to town anymore. She wouldn't be in the marketplace. She would just be gone for six weeks and then she would just return like normal, like she never left going back to her usual activities, her usual kind of odd personality, selling in the marketplace.
2: She was off doing research and development for her bootlegging
0: business. (laughs) No, they didn't know that was happening yet. But she was suspected. So because she was suspected, they they hired a government detective whose name was Finch. I don't know his first name. They just Hmm. referred to him as Finch. And he was assigned to keep an eye on Crazy Nancy and her activities. He worked undercover as a farmhand nearby Crazy Nancy's home, which kind of gave him cover for being in the area. Sure, uh, She lived in what was basically just a plain building. It was a former barn kind of converted into a house that was built into the side of a hill and pretty isolated from any neighbors or any townspeople in the area. Yeah, A few years after she had moved into this house, nearby farmers began to report that young boys had been robbing their apple orchards, stealing, sneaking <laughs> in at night, stealing apples from their orchards and sneaking back out. So that's why they first kind of reported to authorities and wanted to... Get it under surveillance and check it out.
2: They, they, sure, it wasn't just hobbits. It could have been hobbits. I feel like hobbits could have been stealing the apples. Do
0: hobbits eat apples? I don't know. They eat mushrooms.
2: They stole all kinds of stuff <laughs> in Lord of the Rings. I don't know. Yeah, I guess
0: that's true. This is the nerdy side of history. Not that we're not already nerdy by doing a history podcast.
2: I think a, a history podcast is the least nerdy podcast you could have. Probably not. This is actually an NFL <laughs> draft podcast. It's on it's right on outside. Right <laughs> if you're
0: sitting here listening to us and you're bored, just watch out the window. Uh, so Finch first attempted to make acquaintance with Nancy, uh, but he soon found that she had no interest in meeting other people unless to sell them you know, berries furs, her usual stuff. She wasn't trying to make friends in the neighborhood. So he had to start spying on her home late at night. By hiding in some nearby bushes super creepy a little bit. Yeah, but he's an (laughs) undercover agent, so I guess it's what they do (laughs) This was also unsuccessful Uh, He was about to give up on this strategy until one night He spotted a man carrying a heavy sack into her home late at night So Finch automatically assumes that the sack is full of stolen apples that would be used in the illegal Applejack production Hmm. He didn't really expect her to have a male accomplice that was helping her steal the apples so he realized he had to take this situation with more caution. You know, it's the 1800s, a male government agent expects that he could overpower this woman very easily, and he doesn't yeah. have to worry about a man, fighting a man to, like, take him a whole down. Crew. Now she has a man working with her, and now he's gotta be more cautious before he goes into her home. So Finch monitors her house for a week, until one night when he saw her leave home heading into the town of Danville. He arms himself with a revolver, went to her home, picked the lock, and entered. He's walking around the home now, and there's really nothing extraordinary about the ho- about the house. He notices a few apples that are drying above the fireplace and just some hmm. very basic furniture. Not really even a living space, really. It's just yeah. kind of some basic furniture and sees the apples. But then he notices a ladder on the other side of the room that leads up to a lofted area of the home. So he walks over, climbs up the ladder. He's now in the loft, and it's just this pretty much empty room, aside from an old flower barrel that's sitting on one side of it. So... He, he decides this barrel is a good hiding spot. He crouches behind it, realizes he has a good view of the rest of the house, so he kind of hides there for two hours waiting for mm. Nancy to return home. <laughs> He's very committed this to this. This guy's real
2: weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's in bushes in the loft.
0: I mean, this is just, you know, policing in the 1800s. is what we have today, I guess.
2: I'm picturing like a Pink Panther style, like almost cartoonish situation yeah, I was thinking about that when here. I was reading
0: this. Very goofy. But by the time Nancy returns home, it's nighttime. It's dark outside. She walks in the house. She prepares a meal for dinner and goes about her evening, all while this Finch is spying on her from the loft above. About an hour after she gets home, she locks the door to the house. She lights a candle and carries it up the ladder into the loft. Across this room, Finch is still hidden, um, but she sets down her candle and begins to remove the floorboards underneath her in the loft area. Once she removes enough floorboards that the hole's large enough, she slips through it and into a narrow hallway that leads down into a section of the hill that had been carved out. Mm-mm. And she slips behind a door. So now Finch knows that something's up here. Yeah. She's sneaking around to this hidden area of her house. Uh, he stays hiding for about another half hour or so, just watching this door, waiting for her to come back out or trying to see what's going to happen. Eventually the door swings open and a man comes out from behind it. So as the man... Walks back down the hall, approaches the candlelight that's still in the loft. Finch realizes the closer that this person gets to the candle, that it was actually Nancy wearing men's clothes. All right. <laughs> so it was not a man. It was just the same woman it who dresses her, a man.
2: This, this is different than the woman with all the disguises, though. That was a pro Oh, yeah, that's totally different. I was say was it wasn't one of her disguises. But.
0: So Nancy now dresses a man, replaces the floorboards. She goes back down the ladder, grabs an empty sack from a closet, extinguishes the candle, and goes out into the night. Finch now knows what's going on. He realizes that she's out stealing apples, so he's free to leave his hiding spot. He grabs the candle, relights it, and goes to see what's behind underneath the floorboards. So he removes them. He goes down the hallway. He finds this door unlocked, opens it up, and behind the door is a large room that had been dug out of the hill. It contained a still for making Applejack, 50 large jugs, and a pile of apples.
2: So was she literally a one-woman operation? Like, she did all of this by herself?
0: Pretty much. I mean, that's what I'm getting out of it, is that she collected the apples, she produced the apple jack, and then distributed it. At least, that's our assumption here. Also in this room is a pile of women's clothes that Nancy was wearing when she came home. Clearly, she went into the room, changed Changed into her men's clothes, left those behind, then she snuck out into the night. So now Finch has seen enough. He understands her illegal moonshine operation. It's not a group. It's not a male partner. It's just one person, a woman, who dresses as a man to steal apples that she brings back to her secret still, converts it into large quantities of this illegal applejack, and then she would distribute it or sell it hmm. or however. So now Finch has enough to make his arrest. He goes back to the main home. He hides in the kitchen. I think it was just underneath the table. <laughs>
2: Why is he hiding in all of these places? Well, you don't want to spook her. I understand that. He couldn't
0: just knock on the door? What do you mean? She's not home yet.
2: Oh, sorry. (laughs) I didn't realize she wasn't home. I thought he was just creeping around her house. No, he's
0: hanging out in the house waiting for her to come back from stealing apples. So he's sitting in the kitchen, hiding, waiting for Nancy to come back home so he can arrest her. Sometime after midnight, Nancy eventually returns home with a full bag of apples. Clearly, we knew what she was doing. She lights a candle and turns towards the fireplace to stoke the ashes. As far as she knows, she's the only one in the house. Now Finch approaches from his hiding spot. From up behind her, she has her back to him. He raises his revolver and shouts, Hold up your hands. Nancy whips around, quickly blows out the candle, as Finch fires his weapon and misses her. It's enough time for her to hit him in the face with a stool, (laughs) knock him unconscious... And before he can react, the door of the home is thrown open and Nancy is gone. She's off out into See, the night. He should have
2: been cautious with the woman.
0: Yeah, he, th- he thought he was going to be an easy arrest taking on a woman here. So the following day, Nancy's now gone. Never heard from again. <laughs> the following day, the home is searched by authorities. They found stowed underneath floorboards and hidden in caverns dug out of the hill about 500 gallons of this apple
2: just like ready to go. Yeah, not, she not fully playing.
0: produced, just waiting to sell it and distribute it. Wow. Nancy has now disappeared from Warren County. She was never heard from or seen again, and her real identity is oh, still no. not known.
2: <laughs> we don't know who she is.
0: It's She's thought Nancy. that she would bring this Applejack to market by burying the jugs and barrels of chestnuts, walnuts, or covering them in animal hides that she brought yeah. to sell. And more than likely during those six weeks that she would disappear in the winter, she would haul gallons of Applejack to the railroad so that she could ship and sell the moonshine in Philadelphia or New York or other places where they weren't getting it. So she was, like, leaving for six
2: weeks to go on a to go sell sales this.
0: tour. <laughs> right. <laughs> she made all her money in the winter rather than in the market. Yeah. Now, because, like we said, she's pretty obscure, uh, she was never discovered, we really don't know anything about her. All that we know about her is from this one article I found, which was published in the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. Uh, it was a February 2nd, 1896 article where they talk about this all happened 10 years hmm. ago. So... We we like to think a lot of it's true. It's a fun story. Yeah, who knows? But what there's was not being a lot of corroboration. Yeah. It's really just Finch's account that was retold, probably in police reports or oh. whatever. Uh, he told his bosses. I'm a little surprised he admitted to getting knocked out in the face by a woman. That but is that
2: that's big of him.
0: I guess that's one way to get out of <laughs> failing to make your arrest.
2: So this I mean this whole story came from one newspaper source. Yeah, yeah,
0: and we have a copy of it up here if anyone wants to come look mm-hmm. at it when we're done here. Somewhere up here I have a copy of that newspaper article. It's pretty hard to read, so squint your eyes, but it, <laughs> it was cool to find it and check out. I, I remember reading it and I was like, oh, it's a moonshiner about apple cider. This is perfect for doing it. Yeah. Sundog. And I found this article and I'm like reading through it and I was like, oh, this is terrible to look at because it's so like old-timey text and really small to read yeah and then as i read i was like this is awesome this is hilarious she <laughs> knocked out a cop and got away with it and <laughs> never was found disappeared again. into the night like Batman. Yeah. so i mean hope that's a cool story a little bit different than what we typically cover on our podcast but yeah i thought it would be fun to talk about some of women in prohibition and also right you know get the tie into apple fits, cider while it we're it at sundar's <laughs>
2: Ladies and gentlemen, you're about to listen to History's B-Side. But normally I would say, ladies and gentlemen, this is What Should I Do, the podcast. Because I'm Scotty Brandon. My partner, Brandon, is with me. And we're going to tell you all about our podcast, but in a very, very abbreviated version. Because we want you to come over and listen. You're about to listen to Wonders of the Past right here on History's B-Side. But why don't you check out What Should I Do, the podcast, if you're looking for some personal and professional development in your life. People of all industries have been on our show for weekly and you can find us wherever podcasts are available. If you want to come over and have some fun, listen to other people's stories and their challenges, and maybe grow through exactly what they share, as well as play some fun games, come check out What Should I Do, the podcast. We're going to have some fun, and we hope to see you there. Now enjoy History's B-Side. So we usually end our episodes with a short quiz for the host, which today will treat Phil as the host. Um, and we usually do this by ourselves in our bedroom, but since we've got people listening, if anybody wants to answer one of the quiz questions themselves, uh, if it stumps Phil... If you know it, shout it out, because I probably know it. Feel free to well shout it out, it. yeah. <laughs> so it, the quiz we usually do um, basically pertains to the episode topic. As I said, I couldn't find anything beyond Nancy Pelosi when searching for Crazy, Crazy Nancy, Nancy, unfortunately. So these are more broad, I guess, Prohibition questions Good. than anything else. I don't know else. anything
0: about Nancy Pelosi.
2: <laughs> so we've talked about Prohibition now for about an hour, and we mentioned a couple dates, but I don't know that we actually mentioned the, the official dates of Prohibition. Can you name the beginning and end date?
0: The beginning was January... Seventeenth, sixteenth, or seventeenth? Seventeenth, nineteen twenty. Yep. And it ended on December
1: third,
0: nineteen thirty-three. Fifth. Fifth. So Darn it! Close. I was so close. Yeah,
2: that was hey. That was good though. I mean, two I still we like bad.
0: celebrated that as like and <laughs> r- repeal day is what it's called. So December
2: third re- or December fifth. December fifth. Yeah, it's yeah.
0: repeal day. So like that's the day to go out and get a drink because that's the end of prohibition.
2: That was good. See, that was close. <laughs> I mean, I think I I feel like that counts as a win. I'll take it. This is my favorite of the three questions. So Prohibitionists had all these ideas for punishments uh, for for those who drank um, during Prohibition. And so I have a multiple choice question for you. I'm going to describe four different suggested punishments. And I want you to tell me which one's fake because I made one of them (laughs) up. Okay. So Prohibitionists suggested that in response to drinking, or as a consequence for drinking, one would be A hung by the tongue from an airplane and flown over the country, <laughs> exiled to a concentration camp in the Aleutian Islands, oh, placed in bottle-shaped cages in the public square, <laughs> or be forced to carry around a full barrel everywhere for an entire month. Which one of those sounds like it's most made up?
0: Okay, so the last two actually <laughs> sound like on point with like the, the drinking, right. the bottle-shaped cage and carrying around a barrel. Were airplanes that big in during Prohibition times?
2: I mean, the Wright brothers were the first decade of the century, so... They would have been, I know, like, but like, 13 years old at this point, I, I think. Guess. What was the second old? one? The second one is exiled to concentration camps in the Aleutian uh, Islands. That just
0: feels, like, too real to not be it. <laughs> so, all right, so I'm going to say the airplane one is real because airplanes were, like, popular. Like, it was a new thing. They had to be talking about airplanes. The concentration camp is probably too on the nose to, like... That one has to be real as well. I'm going to say it's the carrying around a barrel one. Is the yeah, big one. yeah. Nice job.
2: <laughs> yeah, I made that up just this, this morning. The other three that's like, were real.
0: Yeah. What's the the Greek mythology, the guy that's constantly pushing oh, a boulder up a, a hill? Is Sisyphus, is it? I think it is. Is it Sisyphus? Is it? I hope it is because we're talking about it on our podcast, so hopefully we're right about that. <laughs> that's a good History. question for us. <laughs> I think it is Sisyphus, though.
2: Um, yeah, there are, there are some others. I mean, most of them are boring but pretty brutal, like execution and exile. Yeah, one was be forced to drink two ounces of castor oil. That was supposed to make the question, but I just didn't have You know, report. someone
0: tried that and was like, can I get drunk off of this during prohibition? And they were like, this is terrible. This should be yeah. punishment.
2: <laughs> what was that? I early this morning, I just found, um, I forget who it was, but somebody back then actually thought that you could basically run antifreeze through bread and it would filter out the alcohol
0: I mean, bread is basically <laughs> it make it safe to solid drink? beer, right? Or beer I, mean, is I don't know bread. that the, the bread is the
2: <laughs> important part here. They're dumping antifreeze into it and thinking, they yeah, can but drink it's it.
0: adding alcohol to bread, so it's eating beer, alcoholic yeah. bread,
2: it's eating antifreeze. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what was that punishment for? was it for selling for drinking? I mean, it was it, it, they, were, they weren't drinking. actual
2: punishments; they were suggested punishments okay. for those who partook. Um, I just want to know how they were planning to attach the tongue to the plane in in a way that would stick. (laughs) With a hook. Dear God. Oh, my God, (laughs) Phil. Third question. People get their tongues (laughs) pierced. (laughs) This just turned into some David Blaine episode. (laughs) So for your third and final question, we mentioned at some point dry states, dry counties, and there are actually 10 U.S. states at the current time that allow counties to choose to be completely dry. Meaning entirely ban the sale of alcohol. How many of these 10 states can you name? Jeez.
0: It, Kentucky is one. Tennessee, I believe. Because isn't where Jack Daniels made dry, I think?
2: I don't know. My dad's, you've been to Jack Daniels, yeah? Or no, Jim Beam. Is it dry there? I mean, I assume.
0: No, Jack Daniels is in Tennessee. They're, it's uh, like Lynchburg. or That's something. not Lynch, Kentucky. Shoot, is it Lynchburg? So, I don't know. I think I'm pretty sure we're rejecting those was made as dry, but I might be wrong about that. All right. Um, Texas. Yep. It's got, it got to all be mostly Southern states. I would think
2: nine of the 10 of them you could walk through in one continuous oh, line geez. and not go into another state. Oklahoma.
0: Yep. Kansas. Yep. How many is that? You have four, five left. Jeez. Um, Alabama. Yep. Georgia. No. Mississippi. Yep. (laughs) What else is over there?
1: (laughs) North Carolina. Arkansas. I don't know. What did I miss? Well, Arkansas, Florida, and South Dakota. Let me
0: guess the one that's not... Oh, South Dakota. Okay.
2: South Dakota. (laughs) All right. That was cool. So they still have... Not the entire state is dry, but they still have pockets of So 40 other states
0: don't allow local jurisdictions to ban alcohol? Not fully. That's surprising. I would think that you could have local...
2: They might... You know what? They might allow it. They don't. The, the, they there just don't are, have right, there are no okay. dry counties in, in the other states Fair enough but, There are some that are mixed Like Ohio is mostly mixed In, in terms of control I don't know exactly what that means uh, But it's just not completely dry
0: Well if we ever do a future live episode like this And it's one of those counties Invites us <laughs> to come do it We'll tell them no <laughs> Just kidding we'll, we'll
2: just We only podcast for, for booths. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: that's our payment
2: So, as as usual, um, and not as usual, since we have a live audience, thank you so much for hanging out and listening. Uh, You can find our our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and more. Uh, You can also follow along on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, at History's B-Side.
0: We'll be around for a little bit. If there is anyone who wants to ask questions or about the show or about today's topic or anything like that, we'll also be monitoring our Facebook page if anyone who's listening, tuning in on there wants to message us and talk about future episodes or anything like that. Uh, we have stickers, bookmarks, postcards and uh, that are all free up here if you want to grab anything. Uh, we also have coffee mugs that are available for purchase. They're $15 mm-hmm. or you can just donate to the show at buymeacoffee.com slash b-side. Yeah. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. Thanks for ha- letting us have our first live podcast.
2: Thank you guys. History's B-Side is an independent, listener-supported
0: podcast. Leave us a review or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting service and follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at History's
2: B-Side. Send us your feedback or inquire about sponsorship and advertising opportunities by emailing us at podcast at historiesbside.com.
0: You can support the show by becoming a member or making a one-time contribution at historiesbside.com. While you're there, check out our merch shop, extras,
2: and more. This episode was researched and produced by your hosts, Matt Molino and Philip Hall. Thanks for listening
0: to History's B-Side.